0: very active chat this morning. So nice to be with you all again and I'm grateful to Rabbi Nicole Auerbach for leading you last week and just a a word for the future that I'm actually going to be going to study in Israel um, next week and I'm there for three and a half weeks. So I will be, um, Rabbi Nicole will be leading meditation for the next month, and then I will be back at the end of July. So, um, but please stay with us and and continue and all of that. So last week, I want to tell you where I was. I got to take an historic trip of a lifetime to Saudi Arabia with a small delegation of Jewish leaders. Um, the trip was sponsored by the Muslim World League. Think of that as like UJA for the Muslim world, like a hundred times bigger. Um, But it was kind of helped organized by a Jewish, uh, Orthodox Jewish businessman who started doing business in the Gulf States like 36 years ago. And he has so many incredible relationships um, that he created between the United States and Gulf States and even Israel. Among the participants on our trip was Jason Greenblatt, who worked for President Trump as the Middle East envoy, and he said that this man, the businessman, um, with the many relationships he had created and, you know, continued, was one of the true fathers of the Abraham Accords. And it just reminded me that so much of politics is just personal. Um, So it was an interesting group. I'll say a word about Saudi, which was just fascinating and actually quite inspiring and made me feel hopeful. Um, Not that I'm ignoring the many, many troubles of um, (laughs) what we know that comes from there, but it certainly did not feel like what you imagined it would feel like um, from what you read in the news. Not surprisingly, change is happening at an astonishing rate. Um, 70% of the country is under the age of 35. So think about that in terms of what is being built and how people are um, attempting to become a modern country in a very different way. That includes really strong reforms for women. I did not cover my hair while I was there, for example, and plenty of women were not. reforms in education, uh, real efforts in fighting religious extremism. There's environmental activism and energy diversification. And you see all of this impact in the country already. I'm going to share a little bit more (coughs) in a letter to the congregation that I'm going to send out and post probably online. But for our meditation today, I want to take you um, to join me on my last day in Saudi Arabia where we flew to Um, a desert city, um, I guess is what I'd call it, called Al-Ula. So close your eyes, take a deep breath in, and travel with me across the world and back in time. Al-Ula is an ancient city, almost 30,000 square kilometers In the middle of a desert that has carried different civilizations within its stones over many different eras dating all the way back to the 6th century BCE. The first peoples that they can definitively know were there is a tribe called the Dedanites. That is an ancient people that are actually named in the Bible in Ezekiel. They found an oasis in the desert with water and trees located along the ancient Spice Silk Road through the Fertile Crescent. They settled there. And then hundreds of years later, the Lichion tribe came. And then after that, the Nabataeans settled there. They created Hegra as their capital city around 2,000 years ago. And Hegra has become, was uh, Saudi Arabia's first UNESCO site. So Hegra is part of the entire complex of Ula. So I want you to imagine a vast desert with jutting rock formations, mountains surrounding that just kind of seem to come out from the sand dunes in every direction you can look. The rock formations are not, not all that high, maybe a, a two to three stories high, um, but they are vast and they kind of sometimes just come up in unexpected places. And the desert landscape is vast and you really don't see a whole lot of trees or water where we are. Um, And really I didn't see a single animal uh, and the temperature was about 110 degrees. Picture walking through this desert landscape. And I felt like I could understand the footsteps of our biblical ancestors and why wandering in the desert wilderness for so many years was so punishing. I also could appreciate in a way that I really couldn't (laughs) before how much just even a little spot of shade could feel like it was literally life-saving. It was so hard to occasionally walk right in the direct sunlight when we had to get somewhere And I don't know how people did it. and, And getting to shade really felt like such relief. I understood what water meant in a region like this, where I couldn't see water for what looked like miles. What a miracle it would be to find water in a desert like this. And I felt an immediate sense of spirituality in the vastness and the beauty that was around me. So take a look around and just imagine this desert landscape that's across the world and across time and holds remnants of human life from over 7,000 years ago. We came to one of the areas of Al-Ula that is full of ancient inscriptions. They think it was um, an area where people made sacrifices. They call it the largest open-air library in the world, for they have found over 200 inscriptions etched into the stones, some of them as old as 2,500 years old. You could see pictograms of bulls, like very clearly a bull, um, and a little baby bull with big horns, and you could see musical instruments, very clearly could see harps. And there were scripts where I could not help but thinking so many of these ancient letters looked very much like Hebrew and they were probably early proto um, you know, Hebrew scripts. Our Bedouin guide showed us an, an etching which told the story of a wealthy woman who had, it seems no other male relatives, but she had a lot of wealth from nearby Badr, which is a city that's about 400. I'm sorry, not nearby, but from 400 kilometers away. So she made this trek about a 1,000 years ago to al-Ula. She sold much of her wealth and created a donation um, and sacrificed it to her God and then wrote that inscription on the stone. In fact, most of the inscriptions, our guides said, were testimonials of donations that people, ancient people had made. they bring their sacrifice, offer them out in this wilderness altar, and then etch their names on the stone. It was like the earliest donor walls that you will eventually see in synagogues like Central. Here we were witnessing inscriptions from over 2,000 years ago, and they attest to a deep human desire to be remembered or what we contribute. That desire is still seen and evident today. One of the ancient areas contains hundreds of Nabataean tombs. The Nabataeans came through the Arabian Peninsula after the Romans captured Petra, which is now in modern Jordan. We saw some meeting areas, Carved into the rock, we saw some inscriptions, but the vast majority of what remains there are really impressive burial tombs. Imagine the tombs as giant rectangular two dimensional building facades that are cut into the mountains. They're very similar in style to one another, but very different sizes. Because a person's wealth and willingness to pay, a carver <laughs> determined the height of the tomb, the placement, if it was going towards the sun or away from the sun, the view, was it a nice view from the tomb, and also how far above the water level the tomb would be built in case flash floods would occur. You certainly wouldn't want your bodies washed away. So the tombs had a mix of architectural elements that were reminiscent of the many cultures that traveled along this spice route. The doorway was framed by Two, three, or four Roman columns, depending on you know how much you were willing to pay. There was usually an eagle above the doorframe, which was an Arabic element. There was a rectangular inscription above the eagle that would have um, usually some kind of old inscription that said who resided in the tomb, and usually some kind of curse for anyone who would come in and raid the tomb. And at the top of every tomb were two staircases, one reaching up to the left and the other reaching up to the right. And these staircases were there to help the deceased ascend up to heaven. Hence the name of this place, which is Al-Ula, which in Arabic means higher. It's funny, when we asked the guide, what does al mean? And he said, higher. We said, wow, that sounds so much like aliyah, which in Hebrew means to go up, like having an aliyah. To the Torah, it comes from the word to ascend in Hebrew. And he said, oh, the word for a woman to go higher is al-ilah. And I was thinking, wow, we really are so connected. Our languages, our people, we're all brothers and sisters. So here we are in Al-Ula and that human desire to rise up and to lift up our um, loved ones, whether in life or death, dates all the way back to the earliest civilizations. And finally, we had a member of our group who needed to say Kaddish for his father who had passed in the last year. So we gathered and. I. I knew that my presence didn't count towards the minion because he was um, Orthodox. There were 10 men and three women and they already had their minion, but I came to show my support and to add my amen to the prayer in his father's honor. And also to be part of what felt like an historic prayer service in the desert of Saudi Arabia. I mean, I think you know that you hear about Yemenite Jews or Ethiopian Jews countries that are to the south of Saudi Arabia. And you hear about Iraqi or Syrian or even Lebanese Jews who came from the north of Saudi Arabia, but you never hear about Saudi Jews. And it's not that I think that our people never walked through this landscape, but somehow this particular part of the Arabian Peninsula never became a real home for Jews. And until this moment, perhaps, this, that very moment in modern history, Jews have not felt very welcome or safe to even enter Saudi Arabia. And I thought to myself, who knows if this prayer service we were having in the middle of Al-Ula was the very first Kaddish ever uttered in that spot. But here we were offering a prayer for our dead so that their souls could reach higher amidst ancient tombs with staircases that lifted the souls of their dead. And I thought cultures can be so vastly different across time and place, and yet, and yet, human needs and desires haven't actually changed that much in thousands of years. And it crosses virtually every cultural boundary. So I'm going to leave you to meditate and take some quiet in this desert, to be lifted by this place, Al-Ula, which means higher. And that can be your mantra if you'd like to have one. So if you haven't closed your eyes yet, I invite you to do that now. Take in a nice full breath, let it out slowly. Sink into this desert feel the warmth on your skin. Take in the vastness and the beauty. Let your soul ascend as your body descends into some silence and quiet. And if you want a mantra, al-ula, al and don't mind the time. Think about it, there must be higher love Found in the heart or hidden in the stars above Without it, time is wasted time Look inside your heart and I'll look inside mine Bring me a higher love Bring me a higher love, whoa. Bring me a higher love. It's that higher love I've been dreaming of. I hope you go higher today, tomorrow. Find that best within each of us that aspires for something good. I'll miss you over the next month and um, we'll join you back in July, the end of the month. And um, I wish you all a very blessed day.